the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with Giancarlo Canapara. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about a federal judge's order to reinstate the Trump era remain in Mexico policy ruling that the Biden administration broke the law in terminating that policy. We'll explain what happened and what happens next when he joins us at the top of the next hour. We'll also hear from Sharon Hottie Miller. She's the author of Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. That's all coming up in the um, second hour of today's program. Well, taking a look at some of the news headlines, Portland Public Schools are going to require all employees to get fully vaccinated against COVID-19 before the start of the 2021 school year. The district announced on Wednesday, all employees have to provide proof of full COVID-19 vaccination by the end of this month, unless they have an approved exemption, according to a press release from Portland Public Schools. Employees who are unable to get vaccinated for personal health reasons or those who don't provide proof of full vaccination will be required to get tested for COVID-19. The Portland Public Schools didn't say how often employees would be tested, only that they would be tested regularly. Vaccinations against COVID-19 are the most effective way to protect children, youth and adults. That's uh, from the Portland Public School Superintendent Guadalupe Guerrera. Uh, parents can rest assured that our school system is exercising every available lever, including the requirement of vaccines and masks and the implementation of other health and safety measures to protect every Portland Public School student, our employees and our Portland community. Now, there are parents who are opposed to some of that policy. So we'll see how that goes and follow the story as it will invariably develop. In other news, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security recently issued a new National Terrorism Advisory System bulletin implying that if Americans question or challenge the COVID shot mandates, they're now considered potential domestic violent extremists. As the United States approaches the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attack, the terrorism alert doesn't mention Muslim extremists being a a threat and it barely mentions Al-Qaeda. No, it's just average Americans who have questions about the COVID shot. The Secretary of Homeland Security made an alarming announcement, creating this as the official position of the United States government under Joe Biden. Well, the bulletin states these threats include those posed by domestic terrorists, individuals and groups engaged in grievance based violence. Such threats are also exacerbated by impacts of the ongoing global pandemic, including grievances over public health safety measures and perceived government restrictions. So according to the Biden administration, the imposed covid shot mandates are only perceived government restrictions instead of actual violations of federal law and the 
Nuremberg Code. Well, the so-called vaccines against COVID-19 have only been approved for experimental and investigational use, which emphasize that people cannot be forced to take experimental drugs without their full consent. All of the COVID-19 mRNA injections, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, have received only authorization of emergency use and not full FDA approval, which, by the way, is expected sometime next month. The um, EUAs uh, for both the Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna mRNA experimental injections and any other EUA shots require fact sheets to be given to vaccination providers and recipients. The battle lines being drawn. Well, the Biden administration said uh, on Tuesday it plans to extend the mask mandates for travelers on airplanes, trains and buses. Really isn't news, given the fact that, you know, they're pretty much stepping up the uh, mask requirement everywhere else uh, through the 18th of January with concern over the highly transmissible Delta variant. The purpose of the TSA's mask directive is to minimize the spread of COVID-19 on public transportation. That's a quote from a Transportation Security Administration spokesperson. The uh, current TSA transportation mask order has been set to expire on September 13th, hence the extension to January 18th. A CDC order put in place just after the president took office requires the use of face masks to be worn by all travelers on planes, ships, trains, subways, buses, taxis, ride shares and at transportation hubs such as airports, bus or ferry terminals, train and subway stations and seaports. The outlet reported that major U.S. airlines were notified of the planned extension on uh, a call with the TSA and CDC officials on Tuesday. Meanwhile, a Louisiana federal district court granted medical school students a temporary restraining order against Edward V.S. College of Osteopathic Medicine's mandate that they receive COVID shots as a condition of enrollment and participating in classes and activities in person. On the 20th of July, Liberty Council sent a demand letter to Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine on behalf of three other medical students uh, who were denied religious exemptions and received threats from the school for refusing to take the COVID injection. Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry also sent a letter to the school official stating, I am committed to defending the students' rights to make informed individualized choices about whether to receive COVID-19 vaccines. I will pursue any legal means available to ensure that the rights of Louisiana residents attending VCOM are protected from both overt and covert coercion, harassment and retaliation by VCOM for asserting their legal rights. Well, the school not only denied their exemption requests, but they created a snitch program targeting the students. They've since received threatening emails and have been told they could be suspended and recommended for dismissal if they continue their studies without taking the shot. In his letter, A.G. Landry also reminds the administration they're violating Louisiana and federal law and may jeopardize their collaborative relationship with the state. Well, in a joint statement released on Wednesday, the nation's top health officials said the U.S. is prepared to begin offering COVID-19 vaccine booster shots. In fact, the president spoke on the subject earlier today. Didn't talk about Afghanistan, just about the booster shots to Americans beginning the 20th of September pending FDA review. The shots would be offered to individuals whose second dose of a COVID-19 vaccine was eight months ago. The COVID-19 vaccines authorized in the United States continue to be remarkably effective, we're told, in reducing the risk of severe disease, hospitalization and death, even against the widely circulated Delta variant. 
The statement said, in part, recognizing that many vaccines are associated with a reduction in protection over time and acknowledging that additional vaccine doses could be needed to provide long-lasting protection, we have been analyzing the scientific data closely from the United States and around the world to understand how long this protection will last and how we might maximize this protection, end quote. Well, the statement attributed to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, FDA Acting Commissioner, Dr. Janet Woodcock, U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, and NIH Director, Dr. Francis Collins, President Biden's Chief Medical Advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and others, said currently available data indicates protection begins to wane over time and could diminish in the months ahead, especially among those who are higher risk or were vaccinated during the earlier phase of the vaccination rollout. Well, for six months, an overwhelmed southern border joined rather COVID-19 as the dominant headline. Now the two stories seem to have merged. Almost one-fifth of all of those crossing the border unlawfully in federal custody tested positive for the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. According to the Department of Homeland Security, it was leaked to NBC News. Well, Texas cities such as Laredo and McAllen have had to bear the brunt of um, the virus being carried into the country. There are some key things to know about the controversy surrounding the coronavirus uh, immigrants. We'll tell you more about that when we come back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the steps are being taken to mitigate the impact of COVID-19. Some of the things to know about our southern border, more than 18 percent of families and 20 percent of unaccompanied minors who have crossed the border tested positive for the coronavirus, according to the NBC News report on the Department of Homeland Security's document. That DHS document was included in a briefing for President Joe Biden and the NBC report. The document also showed that more than a quarter of those crossing the border who were being deported tested positive, requiring U.S. immigration and customs enforcement to remove them from planes. The COVID-19 among uh, illegal immigrants is uh, because of the highly transmissible Delta variant combined with lengthier stays in crowded U.S. Customs and Border Protection facilities, the document said. Employees at a shelter run by the Department of uh, Health and Human Services in Fort Bliss, Texas, filed whistleblower complaints alleging that supervisors told them to downplay the number of migrant children who tested positive for the virus. This is the result of the administration's uh, border policies. Lori Rees, Senior Research Fellow for Homeland Security, uh, points out another what the DHS has to say. Well, Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas addressed the matter on the 12th of this month while delivering public remarks in Brownville, Texas. He said that unlawful border crosses are not the cause of an increase in COVID-19 cases. Our capacity to test, isolate and quarantine the vulnerable population that makes a legal claim for asylum is stretched. He didn't uh, uh, did take time in the speech, however, to cast blame on the Trump administration. He pointed out they inherited a system that worked. Mark Morgan, former acting commission with the U.S. Customs and Border Protection in the previous administration, uh, pointed out, well, transporting untested people has been a practice uh, throughout this uh, season. Federal authorities aren't testing a significant number of those uh, apprehended before releasing them into cities because of the sheer volume, according to the New York, New York Post. But cities lack the resources to cope with the uh, population. The Texas city of Laredo made a deal earlier this month with the Biden administration to transport uh, those uh, border crossers to Austin, Dallas and Houston. The reason why we don't do testing is that once you 
barbecue test, there's an obligation. Laredo Mayor Pete Sands, a Democrat, told uh, local uh, media, we don't have the infrastructure for that. At this point, we've had zero ICU beds in the last seven days, the mayor said, uh, speaking to the Rio Grande Valley News outlet. And finally, no pandemic of migrants. Despite all the facts, Dr. Ivan Melendez, who worked in COVID-19 hospitals, uh, hospital wards rather, and is based in McAllen, told CBS affiliate KHOU-TV, we do not believe that this is a pandemic of the migrants. Melendez said illegal immigrants don't have a higher rate of coronavirus infection than the general public and stressed that there was very little intermingling with our local population as they move forward North, Well, maybe not that specific population, but moving north, there would be. Mayorkas, uh, the DHS secretary, made the same assertion uh, earlier this month. The rate of positivity among the migrants is at or lower than the rates in our local border communities, as has been expressed by the medical professionals. This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Uh, The Homeland Security Secretary didn't address the vaccination rates of the uh, countries where the migrants are originating from. Reese said she finds Mayorkas' argument unconvincing since the immigrants have been housed in hotels, placed on planes and buses for transportation. If they have data on that, they need to show it. But that has not yet been the case. Well, in other news, President Biden is relying on the Taliban to grant Americans safe passage out of Afghanistan. The White House, uh, depending on them to give evacuating Americans safe passage to the airport in Kabul, not to mention those who are in other parts of the country, just six weeks after the president said he doesn't trust the terrorist organization. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan joined White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki at the podium for a news conference on Tuesday where they took questions about the fallout from the U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, which gave way uh, to a swift Taliban takeover of the country. Sullivan told reporters that the administration administration expects the Taliban will have to be watched and observed over time on whether it's prepared to meet their obligations to the basic human rights and human dignity of people to the safe passage of people to the airport. Well, this is wishful thinking on steroids. The, tab- the uh, Taliban, rather, have informed us that they are prepared to provide the safe passage of civilians to the airport. We intend to hold them to that commitment. How? Not altogether clear. Sullivan also said he noted the administration was in contact with the Taliban to ensure the safe passage of people to the airport. Well, that story has since evolved. We'll tell you more about that a bit later. In other developments, the State Department tells Americans in Afghanistan to shelter in place until they, until rather they hear from the embassy that's no longer in Afghanistan. The White House admits a fair amount of U.S. equipment in Afghanistan is in Taliban hands. And the Taliban promises to protect women's rights with a catch. The U.S. has halted dollar shipments to Afghanistan to keep cash out of the Taliban's hands. Well, at least they'll be deprived of something. A runaway Texas Democrat is a runaway bride, too. She flew to Portugal to get married. One of the Texas Democrats who fled the state in order to avoid voting on a controversial election integrity uh, bill confirmed that she's also recently traveled to Portugal. State Representative Jessica Gonzalez of Dallas addressed the controversy Tuesday in a statement to the Dallas Morning News, confirming she traveled to Portugal to get married on the 7th of August and didn't address reports at the time due to privacy concerns. We all say family comes first, Gonzalez says, who married her fiance. Um, Angela, in a statement, that value should apply to all families, including mine. I made the decision not to share where I was 
uh, so that my wife and I could get married in privacy. Gonzalez said she returned to the U.S. on the 11th. She was criticized by Republicans in her state, as well as on social media, for traveling to Portugal while her Democratic colleagues were supposed to be in Texas, voting on a Republican bill aimed at combating voter fraud, as well as other legislation. At the time, Gonzalez declined to confirm or deny reports that she had traveled and said via text message, no one has shown proof. In other developments, the Texas House Sergeant of Arms is visiting homes looking for Democrats who fled the state. And the Texas Supreme Court will allow for the arrest of Democrats who don't show up to the legislature. But Texas Democrats plan to remain in Washington throughout the special session. Governor Cuomo is seeking a $50,000 per year lifetime pension as he files retirement paperwork ahead of his resignation. Well, he probably is entitled to that. Governor Cuomo, the New York Democrat who said he will resign later this month amid numerous uh, harassment allegations, has filed retirement paperwork that will allow him to receive $50,000 a year for the rest of his life. The New York Post, citing state laws, reported that neither resignation nor impeachment for alleged misconduct bars resignation uh, 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 bars resignation or impeachment for alleged misconduct uh, eligibility for obtaining a pension for state service. A bit redundant. Well, the retirement application was confirmed by a spokesperson from the state comptroller office. The paper reported Cuomo's office didn't uh, respond to after hours uh, calls for more information. The governor's decision came on the 10th of August, a week after New York's attorney general released results of an investigation. Investigators said Cuomo subjected women to unwanted kisses, groping and uh, much more uh, and created a work environment rife with fear and intimidation. In other developments, brother Chris uh, Chris Cuomo has returned to CNN with the network's journalism ethics under a microscope. CNN's reliable sources team praised Chris Cuomo's honest and heartfelt comments on his brother. Controversy over, apparently. Cuomo issued five pardons and commuted five sentences during his last week in office. And Joe Concha blasted CNN Boys Club and Chris Cuomo's dishonest hubris. Former President Trump ripped President Biden's Afghan uh, actions, saying our country has never been so humiliated. This blows Vietnam away, and he claims Biden isn't calling the shots. A Charleston City Council meeting goes off the rails over mask mandates in schools. Alibaba's U.S. shares have fallen to their lowest since 2019 as China cracks down. Senator Rubio wants President Biden to block TikTok after a Chinese government stake in the subsidiary of the parent company. Dog food has been recalled due to elevated levels of vitamin C. You might want to check that out. And PG&E warns California customers it could shut off power to prevent wildfires. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Giancarlo Canaparo, legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about a federal judge's order to reinstate the Remain in Mexico policy, ruling that the Biden administration broke the law in terminating said policy, and it will be reinstated if uh, the emergency appeal is rejected in the next few days. I think the deadline is the 20th. We'll talk more about that. In the next hour, we'll also hear from Sharon Hottie Miller, author of Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. Her book is published by Baker. She'll join us in the second hour as well. 
Well, the Biden administration is promising to punish schools that don't let boys compete against girls, vowing to fight any school district that doesn't force girls to compete against boys who say they are girls. Former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice says President Biden was wrong to blame the outcome in Afghanistan on Afghan fighters from the op-ed by the former Secretary of State. They fought and died alongside us, helping us degrade al-Qaeda. Working with the Afghans and our allies, we gained time to build a counterterrorism presence around the world and a counterterrorism apparatus at home that has kept us safe. In the end, the Afghans couldn't hold the country without our air power and our support. It's not surprising that Afghan security forces lost the will to fight when the Taliban warned that the United States was deserting them and that those who resisted would see their families killed. The New York Times reports that uh, Biden was warned of the Afghan military collapse as he publicly downplayed that possibility. The paper had, that normally praises everything Biden uh, does with, uh, uh, except in this story, uh, noted that the uh, classified assessments by American spy agencies over the summer painted an increasingly grim picture of the prospect of a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan and warned of the rapid collapse of the Afghan military, even as the president and his advisors said publicly that was unlikely to happen as quickly, according to current and former American government officials. Arizona's governor announced a plan for grants to families affected by covid paranoid schools up to seven thousand dollars per student so that they can take their kids, well, elsewhere. Governor Doug Ducey explained, we know that historically disadvantaged communities bear the brunt of excessive and overbearing measures, and we want to ensure these students are protected. Betsy DeVos points out, thank you for always putting students first on Twitter. Well, the Polish uh, silver medalist, actually, yeah, Polish silver medalist in Javelin has auctioned off her medal to pay for a boy's heart surgery. The Javelin thrower, Maria whose last name I won't attempt to mispronounce, said a medal is only an object, but it can be of great value to others. This silver can save lives instead of collecting dust in a closet. That is why I decided to auction it um, to help sick children. The Polish convenience store uh, story, uh, Sabka Polska, won the auction, then told uh, the, the silver medalist to keep the medal. California Governor Newsom is facing the recall, says everyone is jealous of the state of California. He claims it's due to their success that he's being recalled. Michael Knowles examines the uh, lack of success there in the Daily Wire. You might check that out. From the New York Times, the vote is expected to come down to whether Democrats can mobilize enough of the state's enormous base of to counteract Republican enthusiasm for Mr. Newsom's ouster. Recent polls of likely voters show a dead heat, despite math that suggests the governor should ultimately prevail. The paper then went on to trash Newsom's top rival, Larry Elder. 162 principals and assistant principals have signed anti-white pledges. They see standardized testing as racist and are particularly troubled by the advancement of Asians. Anti-racist. Okay. There's no official evacuation plan for thousands of Americans outside of Kabul and human remains were located in a wheel well of the U.S. military plane after departing from Kabul. According to the Washington Examiner, the Air Force is investigating civilian deaths at the Kabul airport. Suspected terrorists are crossing the border at a level we have never seen before, the outgoing Border Patrol chief says. And rent cancellation advocate Rashida Tlaib claimed up. Uh, or rather cleaned up as a landlord during the pandemic. 
Well, fully vaccinated Texas Governor Greg Abbott tested positive for COVID-19. And the Texas Supreme Court sides with Governor Abbott blocking mask mandates. Tennessee's governor signed an executive order allowing parents to avoid masking their children. And the TSA has extended the transportation mask mandate into 2022. Around the nation, retail sales have dropped worse than expected. 1.1% in July as rising COVID fears hit consumers. And Compton City Councilman Isaac Galvin and five others in California have been charged with election fraud. But of course, we don't have election fraud of any kind here in the U.S. Democrats are stunned by the prospect of losing the two biggest governors within weeks. And the Taliban is killing women for not wearing a burqa, or at least a woman for not wearing a burqa on the same day it vows to honor women's rights. Of course, how they're defining women's rights will determine how they allow them. China is emerging as a strategic winner in the U.S. route in Afghanistan, along with Iran. Pakistan and others on this day in history, 1587, Virginia Dare becomes the first child of English parents to be born in present day America on what is now Roanoke Island in North Carolina. 1795, U.S. President George Washington signs the Jay Treaty with Great Britain. This treaty is officially known as the Treaty of Amity Commerce and Navigation between England and the United States in an attempt to diffuse the tensions between the two powerful countries. 1862, Dakota Indians began an uprising in Minnesota. The revolt would be crushed by U.S. forces some six weeks later. 1894, Congress establishes the Bureau of Immigration. 1914, President Woodrow Wilson issues his proclamation of neutrality aimed at keeping the United States out of World War I. 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, guaranteeing all American women's rights to vote, is ratified as Tennessee becomes the 36th state to approve it. 1963, James Meredith becomes the first African-American to graduate from University of Mississippi. The university repeatedly denied Meredith admission, citing various technicalities of school policy. Meredith, who was unquestionably qualified to enroll, sought the help of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, to fight the university in federal court and won. 1993, a judge in Sarasota, Florida, rules that Kimberly Mays, the 14 year old who uh, girl rather who has um, had been switched at birth with another baby, need never again see her biological parents, Ernest and Regina Twig, in accordance with her wishes. However, Kimberly would later move in with the Twigs. 1995, Shannon Faulkner who'd won a two and a half year legal battle to become the first female cadet at the Citadel, quits the South Carolina Military College after less than a week. Most of it spent in the infirmary. 2004 in Athens, Paul Ham wins the men's gymnastics all around Olympic gold medal by the closest margin ever in the event. Controversy follows after it's discovered a scoring error cost Yang Tae Young of South Korea that title. And at the Rio Games, Jamaica's sprint king Usain Bolt completes an unprecedented third consecutive sweep of the 100 and 200 meter sprints. In the process, he won his eighth gold medal in the 200 meter race at 19.78 seconds. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said that the U.S. will continue to evacuate all Americans they can from Afghanistan. Although the U.S. is currently unable to go out and collect large numbers of people from outside the Kabul airport. Now, notice all the conversation and attention is being focused in Kabul. That's only one small part of the country. There are people scattered throughout the remainder of the country as well. 
It's obvious, Austin said at the press conference at the Pentagon, we're not close to where we want to be. We're going to get everyone that we can possibly evacuate, evacuated, and I'll do that as long as we possibly can until the clock runs out or we run out of capacity or capability. Austin admitted that U.S. capabilities to venture outside the airport are already limited, however. I don't have the capability to go out and extend operations currently in Kabul, explained the defense secretary. Americans attempting to reach the Kabul airport must cross through Taliban-operated checkpoints. And while Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley said the Taliban are facilitating the safe passage to the airport for American citizens, The State Department has accused the Taliban of blocking Afghans eligible for special visas to the U.S. from arriving at the airport. The U.S. Embassy in Kabul sent out a security alert on Wednesday telling Americans they should, well, consider traveling to the airport. Consider traveling to the airport. Embassy staff are currently working at the airport to process evacuations. The United States government cannot ensure safe passage to the Hamid Karzai International Airport. That alert reads, instilling confidence... Not exactly. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll talk about the Afghan president who fled the country as the Taliban gained the upper hand. He's now spoken. We'll tell you what he had to say in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll hear from Giancarlo Canaparo, legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation, on a federal judge's order to reinstate the Remain in Mexico policy. We'll also hear from Sharon Hottie Miller, author of Nice. That's all in the second hour of today's program. Well, Ashraf Ghani, the Afghan president who fled his country as the Taliban gained the upper hand in the civil war, against his government, has surfaced in the United Arab Emirates, or at least that's where they believe him to be. No confirmation yet. The UAE Ministry of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation can confirm that the UAE has welcomed President Ashraf Ghani and his family into the country on humanitarian grounds, announced the small Middle Eastern nation in a statement. In an address on Monday, the president, um, Joe Biden, lambasted Afghanistan's political leaders for having given up. The proximate cause of the Taliban's victory has been the United States withdrawal and decision to stop providing air support for the Afghan ministry, or rather military. According to the Wall Street Journal, the Afghans had uh, relied upon American air power to resupply outposts, strike targets, ferry the wounded, and collect reconnaissance and intelligence, among other tasks. Well, U.S. forces have not been leading the fight against the Taliban since 2014, instead taking on a support role. As a result, American casualties have been almost non-existent for years, while tens of thousands of Afghan soldiers have perished. Biden asserted in his speech that the Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. On Biden's orders, Bagram Airfield, long the U.S. largest military installation in Afghanistan, was deserted by U.S. troops in July, who turned off the electricity and left without notifying the Afghan command on site. The base fell to the Taliban on the 15th of August. Well, as the Taliban seeks to consolidate its hold on Afghanistan, signs of a nation resistance are starting to appear centered around uh, men with close links to the fundamentalist militia historical foe, the Northern Alliance. Well, Vice President, um, one of the country's most outspoken critics of the Taliban, declared on social media Tuesday that under the Constitution, he is acting head of state in Afghanistan. He noted that the Constitution provides for the first vice president to become caretaker president in the event of the absence, escape, resignation or death of the president. 
Well, President Ashraf Ghani flew out of the country at the weekend as the uh, Taliban advanced on Kabul. He is thought to be um, in either Tajikistan or Oman. The United Arab Emirates recently said, well, he's here for the moment. We don't know where he is at this moment, however. In a posted audio clip, uh, he said Ghani had effectively left his responsibilities vacant and his position vacant. I am currently the legitimate caretaker president of Afghanistan because I am inside the country. I am reaching out to the leaders of Afghanistan to consolidate this position and this statement that I have just made. I want to make it very clear that there are many factors why this situation happened. He continued, I am not ready to be part of the humiliation and shame that the foreign militaries have endured. I am standing for my country and the war is not over, end quote. Well, he tweeted in English and Pashtu uh, were uh, his tweets rather were receiving tens of thousands of likes with responses from Afghans ranging from derision to declarations of ardent support, including from military personnel. Uh, Saleh, who did not identify his location, but still um, the video footage posted on social media showed him in Panchir, a picturesque valley and province three hours drive from Kabul that had the distinction of never falling under either Taliban control during the jihadist rule from 1996 to 2001 or to that of the Soviet Union during its decades long occupation. Well, the situation there could potentially set off a domino effect in the Indian subcontinent. Well, as the Taliban gains near total control of the country, India will be closely looking at how Afghanistan's relationship evolves with Pakistan. For one, history suggests that the Taliban-controlled Afghanistan has contributed uh, to militancy and conflict in Kashmir. Well, in his book, Where Borders Bleed, uh, Rajiv Dagra, he's a strategic affairs expert and India's last consul general in Karachi, described how the situation was fairly grim for India, while Mullah Rabbani was the Taliban's chief till 2001. The ISI, which is Pakistan's intelligence agency, was believed to have been uh, ta- uh, talking to Rabbani and asked him for men to be delivered to Kashmir. Uh, he tells uh, in his uh, book, he said uh, we uh, it was probably expecting ten to 15,000 sh- soldiers at the time. Rabbani said he'll provide 100,000 fighters. Well, declassified U.S. government documents chronicle the nexus between the Taliban and Pakistan's anti-India militant training camps. And with China being a close ally of Pakistan, it could soon get ugly for India, according to Michael uh, Kugelman, who's the deputy director and senior associate for South Asia at the U.S.-based Wilson Center. This means that India faces the reality of not only a Taliban government in Afghanistan, but also its two biggest rivals deepening their footprint in a country where India has many equities, investments and close ties with non-Taliban political leaders. The return of proscribed militant groups like uh, Lakshir al Taibi or L.E.T. could spell doom for India's security, but it all depends on Pakistan. The chances of this, the return of L.E.T. happening uh, depends on in part on Pakistan, Kugelman uh, added, which uh, has close ties to both. But uh, because of intense international pressure has sought to curb to an extent its militant assets. So considering not just what's going on in Afghanistan, but the implications beyond a rather interesting observation as well. Well, in other news, two employees of Missouri's largest school district are alleging 
that so-called equity training violated their constitutional rights by forcing them to endorse certain beliefs about race, adding to the already mounting legal scrutiny of attempts to push critical race theory and its associated ideas. Well, filed uh, today, the lawsuit centers around the purported experiences of Brooke Henderson, a process coordinator focused on advocating for students with disabilities, and Records Secretary Jennifer Lumley during training sessions last fall. While Lumley was allegedly berated for disagreeing with the content, Henderson claims she had to affirm statements she disagreed with in order to to progress uh, progress rather in the mandatory training. Springfield Public Schools, according to the lawsuit, also threatened to revoke credit for the training if employees didn't participate completely, which included agreeing with the content. In doing so, it purportedly set up an unconstitutional condition of employment and chilled district employees' speech. Well, the federal lawsuit reads, plaintiffs and all others similarly situated staff risk employment penalties for exercising the right to avoid messages with which they disagree and express messages with which they do agree. Plaintiffs and similarly situated staff are threatened with docked pay, loss of credit hours if they do not affirm their those beliefs and participate in those trainings, both in the past and going forward. Well, the trainings were one of the many exposed by the Manhattan Institute's Chris Rufo earlier this year. They included things like an oppression matrix and teachings like colorblindness and all lives matter are forms of covert white supremacy. So if you believe in the notion, as the civil rights uh, movement did, in colorblindness and one of the most famous Martin Luther King Jr. speeches, uh, then you are now considered a white uh, supremacist only covert. If you believe all lives matter, then you are a covert white supremacist, whether or not you're actually white. Well, the Springfield Public Schools promotes the re, re, promotes rather and reinforces a view of race essentialism that divides Americans into oppressor and oppressed based solely on their skin color. Wednesday's lawsuit reads the uh, school district sets up a. Uh, dichotomy between white and non-white races that depicts whiteness as inherently racist and a tool of oppression. doesn't matter who you are as an individual, what you have done, what you believe, what you have said. You just fit into that category because you happen to have less pigment. Well, Fox News reported earlier this year on one of the sessions, SPS previously said in a statement, Springfield Public Schools is pleased to provide robust professional development. This includes a focus on how to build welcoming learning environments for students and staff of all backgrounds. It is our responsibility and privilege to serve all people, ensuring every individual within our schools has an opportunity to thrive and achieve their full potential, end quote. It added our commitment to all students and staff, including those who are under-resourced and underrepresented, is reflected in our strategic plan, which includes a focus on equity and diversity. Staff training encourages participants to consider how their individual journey may differ from the experiences of others. It provides a valuable perspective for all educators and support staff. Subsequent media coverage has inaccurately represented this training by reporting incorrect and or incomplete information without appropriate context. End quote. Well, these teachers who had the training in context have filed suit. Well, Lumley and Henderson are represented by the Southern Legal Foundation, which brought another lawsuit on behalf of an Illinois drama teacher in June. The teacher, Stacy Demer, Demar rather, specifically accused the district of violating the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause and Title VI, which prohibits discrimination at federally funded educational institutions. Both that suit and the Missouri uh, suit could play pivotal roles in the anti-critical race theory um, 
movement to install legal protections against the controversial ideology being promoted in U.S. institutions. Federal, state and local policymakers have all pushed measures that would restrict certain teachings about race. Lawsuits like SLFs uh, would presumably add an additional layer of protection by prohibiting politicians from changing these policies once they gain power. Well, under siege, well, I guess we won't talk about that at this time. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we come back, we'll have a conversation with Giancarlo Canaparo, legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about the Remain in Mexico policy, which may very well be reinstated, according to a federal judge. And we'll hear from Sharon Hottie Miller, author of Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. That's all coming up right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a federal judge on Friday granted judgment in favor of a Texas and Missouri, I should say of Texas and Missouri, against the Biden administration in their lawsuit over the president's termination of the migrant protection protocols commonly called the Remain in Mexico policy. Well, to explain what happened, Giancarlo Canaparo join us, uh, joins us. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You know, there's been so little attention given by some of the uh, network news programs about what's happening on our southern border. You would think it was resolved and we just had a little trickle of uh, people coming across the border. It's still a major issue. We're just not hearing much about it. And we probably are unaware of the federal judge ruling with regard to the re- remain in Mexico policy. Can you, first of all, remind us of what the policy is and how the challenge came about that resulted in this judge's ruling? Yeah, absolutely. So the policy was a Trump administration uh, policy that puts in effect a uh, provision or that, that essentially um, effectuates a provision of the immigration laws called Section 1225. And what it says is uh, if you enter the United States uh, and you're not here illegally or you show up at the border and you're not here legally, uh, what we will do is uh, we will either detain you uh, or we send you straight back to Mexico. So that's what the law says. So the Remain in Mexico policy was just the Trump administration's policy of saying, if you come here illegally, uh, you have to wait in Mexico while we process your uh, application. The president decided that he was simply going to disregard that policy. And uh, what we've seen is an influx of migrants crossing the border uh, at a 21-year high. Now, there's, there was a challenge. This federal judge uh, determined that the president didn't have the authority to go about what he did in quite the way he did it. How did that, uh, that challenge come about? Sure. So Texas and Missouri both sued uh, because they faced uh, significant costs from uh, illegal immigrants coming into their states, uh, w- whether it's enforcement, uh, law enforcement costs, uh, and the cost of uh, uh, social welfare benefits. Uh, that immigrants uh, can claim, uh, even if in times they're illegal. Uh, so they sued under a, a law called uh, the Administrative Procedure Act. And that's an old law that says uh, whenever an agency, an executive agency, does anything, uh, it has to articulate its reasons for doing so and consider all of the relevant factors. 
In fact, it, it says that uh, agencies have to explain and justify their actions with reasoned decision making, which the administration failed uh, to do. Now, the Supreme Court has weighed in on this as well. And I'm, I'm making reference to a, a column that you wrote recently on this subject. The Supreme Court explained that means they have to explain the relevant data and articulate a satisfactory explanation for their actions, including a rational connection between the facts found and the choices made. They're also responsible for uh, articulating the consequence of, uh, of jettisoning a, a previous administration's policy and the benefits of moving in the direction that they're suggesting. Can you kind of walk us through how this Administrative Procedure Act, which was used rather vigorously uh, against the previous administration, uh, how it applied in this case? Sure. So like you said, you had everything exactly right about the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, So one of the things that it requires the Biden administration to do in this case is to uh, look at, uh, to weigh the benefits that the Remain in Mexico policy uh, created before it canceled it. Uh, It didn't do that. They simply ignored all of DHS's statements about, you know, what good this policy did. They have to balance that against the harm also of canceling the policy. And Biden, and again, DHS had all sorts of information about the harm uh, that would would cause. In fact, some of its predictions about the numbers of migrants that would surge over the border if Biden canceled Remain in Mexico uh, were prescient. And in fact, they were, they were, they were under uh, the numbers we're actually seeing now. Uh, and Biden just ignored that. Uh, Biden was also responsible under the Administrative Procedure Act for considering, uh, for showing that he had considered um, other alternatives to just canceling the policy and explain why he chose canceling it versus anything else. He didn't do any of that. Uh, he was also supposed to uh, balance the harms that would uh, be caused to states like Missouri and Texas uh, that are taking uh, this influx of migrants. He did none of that. Uh, and uh, so what we got was a memorandum that was very basic, very uh, bare bones. It made a bunch of factual assertions in its sort of conclusory fashion that said this policy is going to be great. Uh, without remaining in Mexico, we're going to do fine. He didn't explain any of that. He didn't give any reason justification for it. He didn't explain what he was basing that on, any of the evidence uh, that led him to that conclusion, nothing at all. Uh, he moved with incredible haste and incredible carelessness. And that is exactly the sort of executive behavior that the Administrative Procedure Act uh, mm-hmm. forbids. Yeah, yeah. Now, one might imagine, well, it was just inadvertent. Maybe the president didn't understand the full extent and the requirements of this policy, but that clearly is not the case. It wasn't just a decision on the part of the judge to suggest that the administration didn't have Uh, didn't do what they needed to do in order to jettison this policy, but he also offered a a remedy to the Biden administration's unlawful conduct. What did the judge say the administration has to do and how much time do they have to do it? Yeah, so the way that the Administrative Procedure Act works is it rescinds the, the unlawful agency action. So in this case, the action being rescinded was the memo ending the Remain in Mexico policy. So that means that the Remain in Mexico policy has to go back into effect. So he said, you have one week to file an emergency appeal. Uh, but if you haven't won that on Friday the 20th, the Remain, you have to enforce the Remain in Mexico policy again. And you have to file uh, evidence with me every month proving that you've done it. Now, this, it may be somewhat speculative, but do you expect that the administration will file that emergency appeal? Uh, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Uh, you know, given 
I mean, the, the administration doesn't seem to want to enforce the, the border laws at all. Um, so given that they have been just letting immigrants over the border and not enforcing the immigration laws, not applying remain in Mexico, it seems like they are they are eager to fight um, any sort of effort to get them to enforce the border and the immigration laws. So I think that they will. I'll speculate, given the fact that Homeland Security call this an indispensable tool and some of the other things you said about how this has played out. Um, it, it seems to me that they're not going to win that emergency appeal. What happens on the border then once that date has come and gone and the, the Biden administration is required to impose the remain in Mexico policy? How does that work, given the way things are at the border right now? You know, what it will do, uh, it'll, it means that we will be able to get, uh, in large part, the immigration surge under control because as these people enter, uh, they will be immediately turned back after their information is taken down so that the government can begin processing their, uh, you know, their visa claims. But they'll be immediately turned back. What this means practically for Biden, really, is that, you know, the border is going to is, well, the border improvements will be made along the border, but Biden won't get any credit for them because he's like picking and screaming along this along the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I so appreciated your uh, your uh, column on the subject because I hadn't followed this as closely, and to learn that a federal judge has reinstated the policy, I think. Uh, provides at least some relief that many of us have been looking for along the southern border. Uh, Giancarlo, thank you so much for talking with us today. I appreciate your input. My pleasure. Thank you. Once again, uh, Giancarlo is a legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to share a conversation with Sharon Hottie Miller. She's the author of Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked, and how God calls us to more. That's coming up in just a few moments on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, in a society that places enormous value on being, well, nice, the church has deigned niceness a virtue and ultimately allowed it to become an idol. So says my next guest. In place of real Christian or Christ-like courage, kindness, conviction, and discipleship, many people fall into the traps of people-pleasing, popularity contests, and manufactured joy in exchange for likability. Nice, the book we're going to be talking about, uh, the subtitle of which is Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More, challenges our understanding of false virtue, a perfect facade, pleasantries, and the preservation of the status quo. As many softened stances in order to avoid giving offense, the Bible calls Christ followers to be a firmly rooted position of loving conviction. Christians can no longer afford to serve niceness if we seek to serve Christ. We'll give the author an opportunity to explain what that means. With biblical wisdom, she does that in the book, Surprising Insight, Deep Conviction. The book helps readers identify common forms of nice faith and how they manifest in our lives, how to start practicing true kindness, honesty, courage, and joy, and develop a deeper, sturdier faith that can withstand life's storms and even flourish. 
Well, it's a great book. And joining us is Sharon Hody Miller. She leads Bright City Church in Durham, North Carolina, alongside her husband, Ike. In addition to earning her Ph.D., she has blogged with SheWorships.com for nearly 10 years, making God's word accessible to women everywhere. She's the author of Free to Be Me, Why Life is Better When It's Not About You. She's been a regular contributor to Propel. She reads Truth and Christianity Today and has written for Irrelevant, Encourage, and many other publications and blogs. Once again, today we're talking about her latest book, Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. Thank you so much for um, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, it's great to be with you. Well, let's start by just defining what you mean by nice, because I think if you haven't read the book, if you haven't given this some consideration, this might seem sort of an odd concept. We shouldn't be nice. But explain what you mean by that and why it's important for us to consider whether or not we've made being nice an idol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, first of all, the description you just gave of the book was probably the most comprehensive great description of anyone else. <laughs> did a really great job. Thank you. I was like, I don't even need to do the interview. <laughs> he just covered it all. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, so just to give people a little bit of a, you know, window into just where the idea for this book came from. In my first book, Free of Me, I had in the opening chapter, I had probably just a paragraph where I was reflecting on my upbringing as in a Christian home. And I was raised in the church. I was a really, really good kid. I was a rule follower. I was an achiever. I was a people pleaser, all of that. I was a really nice Christian girl. And just in like a couple sentences, I reflected on that. And I could see that at the time, I would have said I did all those things for Jesus. But in hindsight, I could tell I was also doing it because it was really, really beneficial to me. It it got me a lot. It got me a lot of affirmation, a lot of praise, a lot of approval from all the adults in my life. And what I could see in hindsight is that my my motives were really, really muddy. I wasn't sure if I was good because of Christ or because it was just advantageous to me. So I, I wrote that in just a little paragraph in Free of Me. And I didn't intend to write any more, but that idea, it continued to just haunt me and follow me. And I think the reason why is I realized I hadn't left it behind me. It wasn't just part of my childhood. It really followed me into adulthood, and it had also followed me into to ministry, where I would, instead of being truthful, you know, in a relationship or in, in a, you know, working situation, instead of being honest, I would simply default to being nice in ministry. Instead of saying maybe something that was really hard, I would be tempted to just stay, you know, stick with nice. And so I was noticing this, this in myself again and again and again, and, and how easy it was to settle for that because it's, it looks so much like the real thing. You know, you can mm-hmm. get away with that and still look Christian. And so I, I saw this in myself, but I also noticed it was it was producing some really bad fruit in my life. And that's when I realized I need to to look more closely at this. You know, it's interesting. Niceness, as you point out in, I think it's in the introduction, is sort of an innocuous thing. But when it replaces what we should be doing, then it can be a very mm-hmm. dangerous thing for us and 
uh, for others. Um, You write that my devotion to niceness has won me a lot of acceptance and praise, but it has also inhibited my courage, fed my self-righteousness, encouraged my inauthenticity, and produced in me a flimsy sweetness that easily gives way to disdain. Ouch, that sounds eerily familiar um, because (laughs) niceness is a virtue that we have elevated to a place that uh, we probably should not. Yeah, you know, the word niceness, you asked earlier, what do I mean by nice? And the word nice itself just means pleasant or agreeable. That's, you know, just the basic dictionary definition of it. And those things are not in and of themselves bad or wrong. But when they become your compass and when they kind of become, like you said, your your primary social virtue, like how you navigate relationships and also how you measure other people, that becomes more of a problem. And one of the reasons why it's a problem is we don't see it anywhere in Scripture that this is elevated to the level of something we should aspire to. Mm-hmm. You know, niceness is not a, a fruit of the Spirit. And one of the ways that I parsed out the difference between those two things, you know, what is the difference between being nice and being kind or being nice and being loving, being nice or being gentle. And what we see is that the fruit of the spirit are foundationally about, they're, they're kind of oriented towards two things, which is God and others, you know, just like the two, the two great commandments, loving God and loving others. Everything in the Christian life is oriented towards those two things. Niceness, however, it has the appearance of being about others, but it is really about you. Mm. And one of the ways that you can tell the difference is how you respond when someone doesn't reciprocate. So if you are nice to somebody and then they are rude in a response, how do you respond? Because the nice person, if what you're doing is simply being nice and they don't kind of play along, so to speak, Oftentimes, we're kind of like, how could they, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I was so nice to them, you know, but, but kindness, for instance, kindness is about really loving the other person. It's not about eliciting a certain response. It's, you know, driven by Jesus's kindness, which, which counted the cost, you know, Jesus wasn't kind simply because of what it got him, you know. Jesus gave up a lot, but he was kind out of of love for us. And so that's a really crucial distinction when we're thinking about the difference between niceness and other fruit of the Spirit. You make the point that niceness is not just a social skill, but a competing priority in our lives. And when we Mm -hmm. we hold it up against the fruit of the Spirit, as you have just listed a few of them, it it comes out, it withers and doesn't really stand up to that kind of scrutiny because mm-hmm. it, it tends to cover things that should be exposed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, an- another thing, just thinking through the difference between niceness and something like kindness, there was a an author who was really helpful to me named uh, Barry Corey. I think that's his name. I hope I'm not switching his name. But he has a book called Love Kindness, and he describes niceness as having soft edges in a kind of a squishy core. And then he describes harshness as having hard edges in a a firm core. And then kindness is kind of a blend of the two. It has those soft, kindness has the soft edges of, you know, gentleness and, and love and patience. 
but it also has a firm core, you know, unlike niceness, niceness just caves, you know, it's, it hmm. doesn't have conviction, but kindness is, is driven by that conviction. It has a spine. And so when we're facing, you know, having to say something honest and hard and, you know, I think when we're talking about being Christian, sometimes we're thinking of, you know, saying hard truths into the world. But, but honestly, I think where this probably plays out a lot more is in interpersonal relationships where maybe you have a family member who you've noticed is drinking too much. Or maybe you have a coworker who is becoming flirtatious with another coworker who's married. And in those situations, are you willing to say the hard thing that is true or are you just going to be nice? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Sharon Hody Miller. She is a Ph.D. and the author of Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with uh, Dr. Sharon Hode Miller. She is the author of Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. In it, she writes, I cannot follow Jesus and nice, not equally, because following Jesus means following a man who spoke hard and confusing truths, who was honest with his disciples, even when it hurt, who condemned the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and turned over tables in the temple. Jesus was a man who went face to face with the devil himself and died on a cross rather than succumb to the status quo. Jesus was loving. He was gracious. He was forgiving. He was kind, but he was not nice. He was a man who would leave the 99 sheep to rescue the one, but he was also totally unafraid of offending people. Let me ask you, um, you mentioned the concept of a sentimental Jesus. How does sentiment limit our vision of Christ in his fullness and um, prevent us from stepping away from being nice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh... I, the arc of the, the book, just to give people a sense of it, is the first half, I look at what are the bad fruits of niceness. As I mentioned earlier, niceness looks a lot like what we are called to as Christians. And so I think lots of times we just settle for this appearance of mm-hmm. goodness instead of the reality of it. And the way that we can tell the truth tell the difference is that Jesus gives us this wonderful metaphor of saying you can know a tree just by looking at its fruit. And I thought this is this is the this is the answer. And so in the first half of the book I look at, okay, what are the bad fruits of niceness? And I look at really obvious ones, which we've kind of already talked about, like inauthenticity, where instead of being truthful, instead of being honest, you are nice. I looked at cowardice, how instead of saying what is is bold or hard. You are nice. But one of the fruits that I looked at that, that might be a little bit more unexpected is sentimentality, where we are, I would say, participating in this very nice, very feel-good faith. And that's what sentimental faith is. It's a very feeling-driven faith. And so you are, a lot of what you, how you practice your faith is bound up in the things that make you feel really good. And this plays out in a lot of different ways. It can be, you know, you only read books that are just kind of positive and inspiring. You only listen to voices that are positive and inspiring. It, that is a, a form of sentimentality. 
But it also plays out in nostalgia. It plays out in traditions where, you know, this is how we've always celebrated Christmas and it has nothing to do with the Bible, but we are like married to this tradition <laughs> <laughs> because it's important to us. And how, you know, th- those things aren't, aren't necessarily wrong, but sometimes what happens is we start to, our motives get a little bit confused where we associate what feels good with being right and being true. And what we see in the gospel, what we see in the story of Christ is that following him is not always going to feel good. And keeping that distinction is really important for guarding the integrity of our faith. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Niceness can disguise and mask a lot of things, but you write about niceness disguising aggression. Um, How does this show up in the church or in the workplace or in our family and our relationships with others? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I I talk about it, it. It disguises aggression whenever we are just simply being dishonest. You know, instead of being honest about, you know, how you really feel about something, how you are simply nice, but then you go behind their back and say how you really feel to everyone around them, you know, that kind of a thing. But where what I really dig into is also how niceness covers up corruption. And that that chapter, the, the bad fruit of corruption is a little bit different than all the other fruit that I look at. And the way that it's different is with with all the other chapters, all the other fruit I look at, I kind of look at how do we use niceness to cover up our own sin, basically. How do we use niceness to, you know, put on a mask to our lives? But there's another way that niceness plays out in our lives where we will basically forgive corruption. We will forgive a lapse in ethics or in morality and other people if they are nice to us. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of stories like that right now. One that I talk about in the book and that has been in the, the news is the USA gymnastics story with Dr. Larry Nasser, who it turned out abused hundreds of, of young girls. And the reason he was able to get away with this is that he was a a nice doctor. He was an upstanding doctor with a great reputation. And so these these girls would go to their parents even. They would go to their, their coaches and say, this is happening. And they were not believed because of this doctor and his, his nice reputation. And I think that that story is, really powerful for us as Christians because it gets to the heart of why discernment is so important. This is not simply about us being duped or fooled by niceness. This is about our call as the church and as the people of God to defend the vulnerable, just as Jesus did. And we cannot do that if we are willing to overlook major problems simply because somebody is nice to us because it's you know beneficial for us to simply go along with the status quo so that's a slightly different angle to look at it but really really important mm-hmm. um you share an your analogy about the shallows and the depths of the ocean and our study of scripture as we're attempting mm-hmm. to bear the fruit of the spirit as a, a, mm-hmm. up against niceness. Uh, talk a bit about mm-hmm. this, the, the depths of the ocean. 
Yeah, so that, I believe that was in the second half of the book. So mm-hmm. the first half, I look at these bad fruit, and the second half, I, I look at, okay, how do we cultivate a better tree? Because lots of times we say, don't be this, be that. You know, don't bear bad fruit, bear fruit of the Spirit. And I realized, hold on a second, we're missing some steps here because, you know, an apple farmer doesn't go to a sick apple tree and shout at it stop bearing bad fruit, bear better fruit. (laughs) You know, he cultivates a better tree. And Jesus uses this metaphor because there's spiritual truth in it that we need to cultivate these fruit in ourselves. And one of the ways that, that we cultivate better fruit is through the study of God's word. And what's happening too often is we are kind of approaching God's word in a very, very shallow way. And that gets to what you're talking about with the shallows versus the depths, where I think a lot of us are being discipled almost by social media, where you get on Instagram and you read, you know, an encouraging verse, or maybe you get like an email that that has, you know, an encouraging devotion or something like that. And once again, like these are not bad things. But if that is the, the substance of your faith, it's a lot like standing on a seashore. If you go to, you know, the Caribbean or something and you stand on the seashore, you know what? The seashore is gorgeous. It is absolutely beautiful. But if you never step into the waves and dive in, there's a whole ocean that awaits you. And I think that that is really how a lot of us are studying scripture is we're just standing in the shallows and the shallows are are beautiful. They have their own beauty, but we're not diving into the depths and the depths and the depths of God's word. And because of that, our faith isn't really going much deeper either. And we're not cultivating something deeper as a result. There's so much more in your book. I wish we had time to talk about it, but I would certainly recommend our listeners read the book. It's titled Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. Just discovering what that more looks like is inspiring. Thank you so much for talking with us today and for your book. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Sharon Hode-Miller, Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. The book is published by Baker. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Ben Shapiro wrote an interesting piece, uh, well, yesterday, on the fight over identity to kind of characterize where we as a nation are headed and the perils of dividing ourselves up according to, well, the various differences among us. He writes that America has been wrecked on the shoals of identity. Identity politics have been characterized casually as a form of tribalism. Americans grouping themselves according to biological or sexual characteristics in opposition to other groups associated by biological or sexual characteristics. And there is certainly truth to the idea that such tribalism has damaged America in extraordinary ways. That tribalism acts as a sort of factionalism. The founding fathers feared tearing Americans from each other and forcing them into polarized units competing against others in a battle over control. But there is another form of identity politics, even more sinister than the sort of tribalism we were so openly uh, we see so openly today. That is a form of identity politics that focuses less on politics than on identity, the redefinition of identity itself. For thousands of years, human beings established their identities by learning how to adapt to the systems in which they lived, gradually changing those systems for the better after determining the flaws within the systems. This is how parents traditionally civilized children. I 
adapting them to their civilization. But as Carl Truman explains in his masterful book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, the post-Enlightenment era tore away at the core assumption of such notions of identity. Instead of adapting ourselves to the institutions around us and forming our identity within those institutions, human beings in the West began to locate their identity within, to look to their own sense of authenticity as the guide to fulfillment. In this view, identity was not formed in tandem with civilization, but in opposition to it, only by rebelling against the structures of a surrounding society, by breaking free of convention, could individuals finally achieve fulfillment. Furthermore, fulfillment would require not merely an interior sense of identity, but a a sense of identity cheered and celebrated by everyone else. After all, human beings still feel the need for acceptance. To reject someone else's authentic self of self-identification, therefore, becomes an act of emotional violence. And that's what it's referred to these days. We've now taken this view to its logical end point, total subjectivism, requiring the destruction of any and all conflicting viewpoints or data. Take, for example, a recent New York Times piece applauding the rise of so-called neo-pronouns. Uh, with the explosion of new subjective identities and the demand that others endorse those identities has come a wave of new pronouns. We're no longer talking about biological males demanding that others identify them as she, her in contravention of all available objective science. We're now talking about people insisting that others call them kitten, kitten self or vamp, vamp self. Now, some might find this to be frivolous nonsense, disconnected from any true sense of identity. But as the New York Times blithely notes, what's the difference between an aesthetic and an identity anyway? Well, the depth, perhaps, of one's understanding, perhaps. Well, this is saying um, the uh, quiet part out loud. For decades, those who insist that identity is constructed in opposition to society's rules, rules that must be eliminated in order to achieve human flourishing, have suggested that authentic identity is more than mere aesthetics. But now the Times has given away the show. When you construct identity, tabula rasa, Seeing all history and science as obstacles to happiness, identity quickly flattens into aesthetics. And we all, um, we are all expected to agree with your sense of aesthetics, unless, as the Times notes, your identity is Black Lives Matter. In that case, you are encroaching on long-standing areas of sensitivity and must atone. Well, when identity becomes pure aesthetics, society completely atomizes. No free society can be rooted in utter subjectivity. Someone must enforce silence from the top, bar dissenters and punish those who insist on objective data. And that's precisely what we're currently seeing from an authoritarian left and authoritarian left that arrived with the promise of fulfillment and authenticity and has instead delivered emptiness and aesthetic pretension enforced by institutional fiat. Now, I found this rather interesting. And again, that was a, a short uh, piece by Ben Shapiro on the fight over identity, which I, I wanted to bring up for a couple of reasons. One, because it aptly explains where we are as a culture. And if you were able to listen carefully, uh, exposes the dangers of the direction we are headed. But it also pre- presents a tremendous opportunity for the church to distinguish itself as something quite different. Um, in which people are connected to one another by virtue of a common heritage that has nothing to do with one's tribe or race, 
but it has everything to do with your common heritage in Christ. There is an opportunity in our culture in the midst of what is very disturbing um, that presents an opportunity for the church to stand apart from the way we relate to one another. And it may require some difficult conversations about things that have divided us in the past by suggesting, for example, that critical race theory and intersectionality is not the direction we ought to go, is not to suggest that racism doesn't exist in our society. My suggestion is that's not the approach to take if you want to eliminate racism, if you want to realize the goal of the civil rights movement, which has been wholly rejected by much of what we're seeing today. But the church has an opportunity, if we read the scriptures as we ought uh, to relate to one another in a way that the world has never seen before, where the differences that exist among us, although they present a beautiful tapestry of differences that are are designed and created by God for purpose, do not divide us, but bring us together to reflect the body of Christ in a way that nothing else can And I'm hoping that as we find what's going on in the culture today disturbing, and from my perspective, we should, that we also see this as a tremendous opportunity for the body of Christ um, to reflect what Jesus in the scripture said he ought to reflect and how we relate to one another being one body. Now, yesterday I talked about the body of Christ as it extends beyond the borders of this nation into other nations who are suffering. We talked about Afghanistan. We talked about what's going on in Haiti. Uh, I didn't get a chance to talk about what's happening in Nigeria, but the church at large of which we are all a part, we are connected to one another inexorably by virtue of the sacrifice made by Christ on the cross. And if we would seize the opportunity that we've been given um, to fully experience by the, the power and work of the Holy Spirit, because quite frankly, we cannot do it on our own. We could do something that could, as the first century church did, turn the world upside down. And that, that's been my prayer, that we wouldn't look to the culture. And we're being called as the church, and we've talked about this with a guest, I think, earlier this week. Uh, we're being called in the church to step outside of the church to resolve the issues that we face in our country and in our culture, but rather to look to God's word. How do we live up to the high standard that God has called us to, to love one another, to prefer one another? Um, and again, that's that's the work of the Holy Spirit that that God produces in us. But I see this as a tremendous opportunity for each of us when we humble ourselves, we lay aside perhaps our own uh, interests in favor of reflecting what God intends for the body of Christ. The uh, article by Ben Shapiro, by the way, can be found at the Patriot Post. It's worth rereading if you have the opportunity. You can find that online. And the date is the 18th, so it's, it's current, the fight over identity. So you might want to check that out. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank um, Clark Hilton for engineering. James Blend is on vacation, but he is the producer of the program. And I'd like to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's 
Dirty Secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.